Thank you for joining us for this episode of From All Sides, a podcast by Cube Group, where we explore the strategic, organizational, and human sides of the major issues facing public value organizations in the current world, and particularly the current COVID-19 crisis. Our series focuses on the different ways the COVID-19 pandemic impacts public service leaders and their organizations. And we discuss the ways we can be better prepared to lead Australia through response and recovery. Cube Group acknowledges the traditional owners on the land in which we work. Cube's offices is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of the land on which we work and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to Aboriginal Elders and community members who may be listening today. For more information on each episode of the podcast, please visit our website, cubegroup.com.au. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Today is June 2nd, 2021, and for those of us in Victoria, we are now almost a week into the latest lockdown. Our material number of cases in the community, and some of those with unknown transmission links, has ended the relative normality that Victorians have been enjoying after we successfully eliminated COVID-19 from Australia. This latest lockdown comes as a blow to many and has served to remind us that the threat of COVID-19 remains very real. And of course, that is much more than a threat in many places around the world. Countries like India and Brazil are slowly getting on top of what has been a disastrous few months with tragic levels of death and suffering. There is, thankfully, happier news from other parts of the world, especially those countries with well-progressed vaccination programs. The UK, for example, recorded its first day without a COVID-19-related death for more than a year and also recently reached a milestone of more than half of its population, and that half being the older half and those more susceptible to the disease, becoming fully vaccinated. Time will tell, but the early evidence on the ability of most vaccines to dramatically reduce hospitalisation mortality is extremely encouraging. And the silver lining to the latest lockdown in Victoria may be a renewed commitment among the population to get vaccinated as soon as possible. The latest lockdown in Victoria comes as a painful blow to everyone, but it must especially be felt by those businesses engaged in industries most directly impacted, especially the hospitality sector that was only beginning to emerge from what has been an extremely difficult year or more more. I've personally been so impressed with the creativity and the determination of the hospitality sector, and it feels more than timely for us to talk to a public purpose leader in the hospitality sector about how they're coping with the dramatic impacts on their business and what the path towards recovery looks like for them. Our guest today is Rebecca Scott. Rebecca is the CEO and co-founder of Street, a Victorian social enterprise focused on people and the planet. Street creates supported pathways for young people to a sustainable livelihood, addressing youth homelessness and disadvantage. They do that through some 12 social enterprise cafes, as well as sustainable food sourcing, food production and urban farming, and rethinking our food systems for a more sustainable future. Of course, Street has been impacted as much as anyone by the COVID-19 pandemic and our physical restrictions, but they have a powerful story for us to hear about hope and innovation. Rebecca Scott, welcome to this podcast. Thank you very much. Can I start, as we always do, by just asking where you're speaking to us from during this latest Victorian lockdown? What's your, oh. what's your home office set up like <laughs> and how have you found it both the last week but also, I guess, over the, whole, over the whole journey? From a place I would say that I'm calling you or talking to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, so I'm very much on First Nations land that's never been ceded. 
And as far as my home goes, I, I've been hauled up in my kind of home with my lovely wife, Kate, uh, who's been working from home and our son and our dog. And it would be fair to say it's been a little bit crazy. Well, let's talk about street. And for me, just thinking of your organisation, at the start of March last year, you were at the edge of leading a social enterprise that runs cafes that was about to face, well, six months of lockdown, but let's 12 months more of, of really serious physical distancing restrictions. It's it's hard for me to imagine an organisation that is more squarely in the focus of the pandemic containment measures. Where is Street at today? And tell us about the last 12 months for your organisation. That's a question really that's probably got two very different parts. So the organisation as, you know, as we had built it for the last decade was a portfolio of 12 hospitality social enterprises. All of those hospitality social enterprises are inner Melbourne, um, most of them kind of right in the heart of the CBD. So not only would you not want to be running hospitality ventures right now, you would also not want to be running hospitality ventures in a capital city in the heart of a CBD. But then, of course, we've got the whole other reason that we exist. We exist to change young lives. So the only reason that we're running cafes is because we want to stop, you know, youth homelessness and disadvantage. So cafes just happen to be, you know, the means and stopping youth disadvantage is the ends. That also saw some real crisis points, I guess, because what we would expect that any person who who was living in a vulnerable situation and had faced, you know, large amounts of trauma and disadvantage and barriers in their lives are, of course, going to be more vulnerable and susceptible, you know, when a crisis hits. Our cohort that we had to close our doors to as soon as the pandemic hit, you know, all, all of our youth programs and all of the the stuff that we would do with our young people, all of those programs had to close and we were, of course, kind of supporting our young people however we could, say, you know, virtually and and over the phone. But you imagine a circumstance where a very large number of our young people might come from violent families or, or being victims of violence. Imagine what last year was like, for example, if, you know, you were locked up with your your perpetrator for a year. We saw domestic violence really spike last year. We certainly saw amongst our own young people drug and alcohol addiction get way worse during that time. We saw hunger get way worse. We saw mental health issues get worse. So on one hand, our businesses were in tatters, but also at a time when we were seeing far more need for the young people that we work with. That's kind of one side to the answer, I guess. But the other side for me is also that with each, you know, with each crisis comes opportunity. And so I'm actually really proud of the work that we did last year. We managed to create a whole heap of new silver linings and opportunities, I think, out of the crisis that ensured that we continue to do a, a great amount of, you know, social and environmental impact, but also I, I think kind of set us up as an organisation to build back better. You know, I like that idea of how do we build things out of the ashes and out of the ruins and we weren't going to give up easily as an organisation. So I'm a bit over the word pivot, but certainly, you know, <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time I was thinking about pivoting, we, we would have had a new revenue stream for the organisation. A, we've survived as an organisation, but we're actually moving into, you know, our second decade with a whole heap of new programmatic work that we've built out of the pandemic. Your cafes closed probably in March, but closed for almost a, a full a full year. Is that is that right? 
Yeah, look, for even longer for some of them. So we've got we've still got businesses that have never reopened just because within the CBD. So we we run a, a whole bunch of corporate cafes, for example, and there's still many of those corporate office towers where there's just not enough people back within those office towers to make them even viable businesses to open. And then in some cases we had businesses that had just reopened after the year. So we've got a couple of businesses that have just been back open for two weeks <laughs> going into, you know, this lockdown this week. You know, realistically I think we'll lose probably a couple of those businesses that may not reopen. If you walk down the main streets of Melbourne right now, there's a lot of lease signs on a lot of buildings and, and I think you know, there'll be a lot of businesses that, you know, potentially don't reopen uh, as we're seeing in many capital cities. So I think we'll we'll certainly have some businesses that possibly don't survive the year lockdown. And tell us about the ways that you pivoted, if I can use that word just one more <laughs> sure. time. Yeah, you mentioned several ways in which your organisation saw both, well, emerging needs, but existing needs that were even compounded by the pandemic and found ways to respond. Why don't you tell us about some of those? Look, I think the thing that was really apparent to me, you know, as I was watching the pandemic before it came to Australia. So I was watching, you know, what was happening around the world. And, you know, even before it was declared a a pandemic by the the World Health Organization, you could certainly see the potential for what could happen. And I kept on thinking about what a perverse situation that we, we could end up with where whole bunch of hospitality social enterprises who were doing great stuff around the country would be closing their doors at exactly the same time as as we would be facing all of this extra hunger. You've got all of this extra unemployment and, and all of these people that would be facing food insecurity at exactly the time when those of us who who used, you know, our food businesses to do social good were closing. And so what I did is at the very very start of the pandemic is I I speed dialed a bunch of social enterprise peers who were all in the food industry. So hospitality and catering and also kind of some social enterprise farms and said, hey, what would it look like if we kept our doors open collectively? But we, we started producing meals for those who were going hungry. And rather than serving our, you know, CBD customers and them all walking in the door and sitting in our cafes and our restaurants and kind of buying our catering what would it look like if we we got some supporters to help us fund that work and then we went to those communities who were in most need and I think what we did is really quickly did some mapping so we commissioned someone to do some very rapid research around where the pandemic was going to hit the hardest and particularly those communities where we felt weren't being very well serviced by the the existing food relief system and one of the things I think that's always kind of confounded me and upset me when I stood, you know, stood back and look at the food relief system is often the things that we feed people who are needing that system, we feed them highly processed food that isn't healthy. So on, you know, one hand we're filling their stomach, but on the other hand we're giving them diabetes or certainly, you know, we're not giving them good health. So often health and nutrition hasn't been factored into that food. It's just been food that's been donated and has been available, say, from supermarkets and, you know, left over sort of stuff but then on the other hand what we weren't doing is we weren't giving people choice and and it rarely felt like there was dignity in the food relief system that there was this real sense of we make up food and you get what you get and don't get upset with it and so this you know there was no choice and agency in that and we started to say as a collective of social enterprises 
you know, well, what would it look like to create culturally appropriate meals for our different, you know, refugee and migrant communities who weren't getting choice? And we started to ring around and say to people, you know, to, to those working in the food relief system, are you making halal meals or are you making culturally appropriate or diverse meals? And and what we could see was that wasn't happening a lot. So we kept our kitchens open and our, you know, delivery vans running and and we made in excess of 130,000 culturally appropriate meals together. We grew 60,000 plants in our urban farms and then packed 30,000 culturally appropriate produce boxes that got distributed to communities. So we actually stayed really, really busy. But one of the things that was really lovely, we kind of got to the end of all of that acute kind of crisis work and and we said, hey, we've really loved working together as, as a community of social enterprises. Why wouldn't we stay working together and, and start to say, well, what, what does not just kind of food relief look like, but what does regeneration look like longer term and how would we start to build a fairer and more regenerative food system for the state of Victoria and what might we do together? So it would be fair to say that we, you know, that early pivot work that was very much kind of funded by the generosity of just general public making donations to us and also from philanthropists giving us money, we've now said let's keep working together over these coming years and we've got what would be fair to say is dozens and dozens of of bigger projects that we're now about to embark upon. And those sort of projects are far more strategic. You know, they're not Band-Aid food relief projects. They're, They're things like, well, what does deeper food sovereignty work look like? What does it look like to create training employment pathways into the food system? What does it look like to start building far more urban farm activity in the city? What does it look like to increase the number of community gardens that that people have access to? What does it look like to build circular economy products and services and be thinking about food waste and reducing that down and all of these different aspects of the food system that you can start to link in together? I actually have got an enormous amount of my own, I guess, kind of energy, you know, in this pandemic from working alongside some of my closest friends who were running neighbouring social enterprises, but we, we hadn't actually collaborated together. So that's been a real joy. What I find just wonderful about that is you described it earlier as a pivot, and and of course it is, but it also feels, as you're describing it, immediately connected to your mission and who you already were as an organisation. Yeah. You know, it, it seems like a very different expression of your mission and purpose, but still totally lockstep in who you already were. Totally. Was, it, was that? Yeah. Yeah. Did that come naturally, I suppose, or did these ideas just emerge quickly or or was that a more deliberative process? I'd love to hear how that decision-making and that pivoting process what was like for you. It certainly was a strategic pivot. So, of course, it was happening in a pandemic, but we as an organisation have had this big two impact areas for our organisation for the last decade being, you know, people and planet. I'm a scientist by training originally and I'd spent my first decade in science and you'd have to have your head in the sand to not know that we are facing catastrophic climate change crisis and that the next 10 years on Earth was so critical to not just the survival of our species but the other 9 million species on the planet with us. And so I guess what we had very much done, you know, a couple of years ago, we declared a climate emergency. We had determined that those areas that we were going to work in were always going to be doing, you know, people and planet at the same time. But I was also very, very aware from, you know, all the research that we'd, you know, I'd read and we'd read, the food system is such a critical system 
to human and planetary health. Whenever you try and do either of those impact areas, you come back to the food system. And in fact, the Stockholm Resilience Centre says that the only system that you can do all of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals through, that you can address them all, is through the food system. You kind of see the food system as an acupuncture needle in a way bigger system. And so we've certainly been thinking for quite a number of years as an organisation what, you know, what decade to look like. And you'll never take the nerdy plant scientist and biologist (laughs) out of the social entrepreneur. And I remember back in 2016 taking some annual leave for a week. This is going to sounds super nerdy, but I went off to uh, Ubud in in Bali, a really beautiful place uh, up in the kind of rainforest, and I took every piece of food system research that was applied to Australia that I could find with me. I downloaded masses and masses of it onto my tablet and and had a whole heap of research papers. So it was all it was all kind of academic research, and we had this incredible body of research done a number of years ago by a group called the Victorian Eco Innovation Laboratory. They no longer exist; they were part of Melbourne Uni, but they had done this amazing bunch of research over multiple years around what's the food system that we need. And I remember kind of devouring all of that research across that week and on these very, very big pieces of paper. So I had these pieces of paper that were metres and metres long. I think I had probably this kind of one expandable piece of paper that was probably of the order of five metres long. And I redesigned the whole food system on this enormous sheet of paper and then where, you know, the role that we could play across this food system to help kind of catalyse, you know, a whole bunch of the work that we thought needed to be done. That was work, strategic thinking that we had done that was based on research and and years of, of really good kind of applied research in particular, bringing that down to the state level. I felt like really when the pandemic hit, it wasn't like it was the first time we'd thought about food systems. It wasn't like the first time we'd thought about climate and food and, and food systems rather than for just food, you know, food service and hospitality. So in that sense, I felt like we were doing is we were just pulling the future into the now. We'd mapped out 20 years of work we wanted to do. We knew what that work was. We, we'd drawn that work out strategically. I always have at least a 10-year goals for the organisation, but in this case, we'd build ourselves a 2040 plan. So I felt like, yeah, we, we were literally just pulling, if you work in a three horizons model in building stuff, you know, we pulled the horizon three into horizon one and we're using the pandemic as the ability to, to kind of supercharge that work. That's wonderful. I, my favourite meme going around through all this was a little survey about what drove the transformation of your business. You know, was it McKinsey Consultants or was it your, <laughs> um, was it your technology officer or whatever, or was it, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic? And we normally joke about that in terms of remote working or uptake of IT, but that was an opportunity to really step your whole organisation into the place it wanted to go. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. The funny thing is that the Three Horizons model is actually a McKinsey model. So it would be fair to say if I look back and even though my various careers, you know, both in science and now in social entrepreneurship look disconnected, they're actually not at all. What I've been doing in is really social innovation across various different styles of doing that. And probably the thing that's kind of consistent throughout my career is how do you solve complex problems using cross-disciplinary practice? And what I just happened to find that 
youth homelessness got under my skin as a complex problem that needed to be solved and I just couldn't stop thinking about it and it was kind of like the stone in my shoe for year after year after year until finally I gave up my career in science to go and try and work in it. But really it's I'm taking that same approach in you know, multidisciplinary approach, seeing a system rather than a problem, trying to figure out how you do that in, you know, at three different levels in a system. So how do you do it from a grassroots perspective? How do you do it, you know, at the level right from kind of policy and and those bigger system things that need to change? But how do you also then on the ground do the organising of all of those, those little parts of a system that if you add them up one plus one plus one, they don't equal the change that we need to see. How do you actually create transformation? Why don't you, with the time available to us, tell us a bit about what was on that really long bit of paper and that long dream for the future of street. And particularly, you're talking about moving from a focus on food services or you know the cafes around food services to food systems, I think is the way I've heard you describe it. What does that transformation look like? Yeah. What do you think it means, well, I suppose, at all levels, both for our society and also for street? I guess when you're looking at trying to solve complex or wicked problems, you know, there are many parts of the system that you need to be working in at once. And if you take some different models of how systems work, there's one model by by academics called Schott and Gilles, and they talk about kind of three levels of a system being kind of the grassroots stuff that happens at the lowest level. You know, if you've got if you've got meso, micro, macro kind of levels in a system, and at that kind of grassroots level of the enterprise level, you've got all of these individual enterprises that are you know that are trying to bring about change that next level up you've got kind of the systems that are in place the kind of government policy and industry actors and and the kind of the more structured parts that bring those different kind of individual enterprises together and then then kind of at the highest level it's all your your meta stuff it's it's the geopolitics the the regional stuff how all these things interact at national and global levels and if you take the work that we've been doing in this first decade at Street, it's very grassroots. It's very building an enterprise solution to try and address an issue like youth homelessness and disadvantage. But if you stand back from that and start to say, how would you start to connect all of these various enterprises together? And what are the different things that bring about change at those three levels in the system? I'm always interested in is how do you how do you see the things that you're doing on the on the ground as part of a bigger global system? And once again, you've got that, that acupuncture needle. Where are you putting that in, in that system? And and we know if you know one plus one plus one, we we don't want it to equal three. We want it to be equal, not just the incremental change, but the transformational change that we've really got to see in systems if we're going to avert catastrophic climate change and all of the social poverty and crisis that comes with that as well. I guess what I'm really interested in is how would you start to create either at the top level the cracks in the system or the enabling environment in the system that allows social innovation to happen? But then on the ground, how do you start to connect up social innovators to each other and get them to start to pull in the same direction? That really radical innovation normally comes from the ground up but it often can stay small and subscale and doesn't really kind of become transformational. But, you know, most social enterprises are fairly small in scale. So it's wrong, I think, to think about solving complex problems by just taking a solution and scaling the shit out of it. We know when we, when we need to solve complex problems, we need what's called 
ecosystems of solutions. So it's actually about getting lots and lots and lots of things in relation to each other and then them growing together to be connected. So, you know, what would building the interstitial, you know, connective tissue between all of these things start to look look like? And that's what I guess keeps me awake at night at the moment. You know, how do you connect all of these things up? How do you start to connect supply chains? How do you start to get efficiency across these things? And, you know, if I stand back and say, all I'm really trying to do is do what I'm trying to recreate some sense of how an ecosystem would work. You know, an ecosystem doesn't disconnect its food services from its waste system, from its energy system. All of these things are circular I'm really, I guess, seeing the city as saying, if we were trying to build a circular, fair and regenerative food system in this city of, you know, 6 million people, well, what would that look like? And how would we start to connect those things up? So you need to work on the demand side, you need to work on the supply side. You know, we're connecting up social enterprise farms and propagation nurseries to social enterprise food producers and, you know, hospitality organisations to social enterprise waste and circular economy organisations to logistics and distribution and trying to build this kind of end-to-end system where all of that creates training and employment pathways for some of our most kind of vulnerable communities so that stuff, I think, gets really interesting because, you you know, you, it's the aggregation that creates the scale rather than cookie-cuttering something and making a McDonald's version of scale. If we're really going to be able to address these complex issues, we've got to work in, in a very place-based, relational way on the ground using the local context as, you know, as where the innovation's happening. Yeah, that's very good. One of the challenges, surely, for the social enterprise sector is its richness does come from how many different expressions it has. And Mm. if you did try and impose the sort of broad acre farming, you would lose a lot of that richness. And and Mm. I I see that that desire is not at all a part of your vision. And and actually, your vision is looking to embrace that richness, but connect it up to get the system level impact that's needed. That's exactly right. You know, you want all that richness and that granularity at that local level. You want to be able to connect to your local neighbours who are who are growing something or be able to sit around a table with someone from a different community and break bread together. We've built this absolutely ridiculous food system that relies on 80% of us buying our food from the duopoly of Coles and Woolworths and that food is out of season from the other side of the world often and the ethics and supply chain impact of that just haven't been taken into account. So one of the the greatest expressions of our love for our community and our love for our planet being to eat locally, to share and cook and produce locally. That is one of the greatest expressions for love of planet that we can do and not wasting food, you know, localising our food, growing our own food. And also obviously we've got to move very, very much to far greater plant-based diets. So, you know, we're not killing the Amazonian lungs of the planet, turning them into big feedlots for meat. So this is a whole bunch of things that we've got to do, but a lot of that centres on building local food systems that are integrated and seasonal and regenerative. I'd love to hear about your experience as a leader through this process and what it was like for you to make some of the difficult decisions that had to happen at the start of the process, but to actually go through that mindset and shift and and see the opportunity for framing. What was that like? It was probably equal parts of exhilaration and exhaustion and frustration, I think. Uh, I felt like 
I don't know if you've seen the movie Mad Max, but where Furiosa is, you know, driving a semi-trailer truck into the into the apocalyptic storm. I remember re-watching Mad Max during the pandemic and feeling like that's exactly what it felt like. My lovely partner and co-founder and wife, Kate, and has said to me over, we've been in each other's lives for 25 years, and she always said to me, you know, you are very, very hardwired for an apocalypse, aren't you? So I probably do, I do my best thinking, you know, under pressure and and when resources are scarce and, and there's a burning platform, as many entrepreneurs do actually. So I've got an incredible amount of energy, you know, through the pandemic doing some of my most joyous and creative work. But it would also be fair to say that part of that, the frustration has been what you're often doing is is you're, you're actually inhabiting the future for most of your time. You know, what you're doing is you're reimagining the future and, and you're wanting a different future and you, you've got to make it believable enough that you could take lots of people on that journey and those other people want to be on it with you. You've got to be good enough at connecting up lots of people. So, you, you know, you've got to be able to, to do all the relational stuff. You've got to make it so granular and be out there in that kind of, you know, you've got to imagine what that 20, what 2040 or 2050 is going to be like if you're not doing this intervention and not using this because you've got to find the way to, to kind of not just give up in a crisis. Whenever, when the thing that you've built for the last, you know, 15 years is lying in tatters around your ankles, it would be really easy just to kind of go into a cocoon. And so part of what I was having to do very much within my own team is, kind of deal in hope and that kind of vision of what's possible. And part of the problem that, you know, we're really facing in this pandemic is everyone's just exhausted. Everyone, you know, just trying to save things is so hard and so exhausting, particularly when you're already working with populations that that have got so much crisis in their life. It just There's just an exhaustion layer that kind of kicks in. I've had, it would be fair to say, some of my most frustrating conversations where I felt like people were looking incredibly inward and just kind of in in risk management mode where I thought we had this way bigger opportunity to shift and change systems. But that was probably way outstripped by, energised by other people who wanted to really use the disruption was happening in a, in a way bigger, catalytic, more strategic, long-term kind of way. Part of the, the skill in all of that is, is being able to detect kind of the signals from all the noise as well and actually not letting all of the noise and all of the heartache overwhelm you to actually bring hope and optimism to that crisis. The way I think we have to do that is by storytelling it's by telling ourselves the alternative future that we want and then being able to make the connection between where we are right now and what 2050 looks like if we do some different things right now. That opportunity, I guess, to lead those processes of storytelling and share our vision for what, what we want to see. You know, what's the city that we want to live in? We know that this city by 2100, if, if Australia keeps or the world keeps on, on its current trajectory, is going to be having heat waves every single year of over 50 degrees. What's the alternative planet that we want? And then what are those rays of hope that we kind of bring down into the current to motivate us to get on and start to build it? So storytelling. Telling alternative stories from the world that we want to be in. 
despite the disruption, there are things in this last year that where where we probably felt more connected to our local communities. We've probably spent more time working from home and we, we probably know our neighbours better. We probably have checked in on some older, you know, older neighbours. There's probably a whole bunch of things that we don't want to jettison coming out of this pandemic that we've realised that are, you know, special and rich to us. So I guess what we're trying to do is, is mine that experience and say, what are the things that needed to be jettisoned and needed to go? But what are those things that are precious and, you know, in that building back better? We're not going to let hold of those things. And and so I think that's the trick. We, we've got to enter the future you know, jettisoning a bunch of things but hanging on to the new things that we, we've we kind of reminded ourselves. I think many of us knew those things but we've reminded our things that these things are, are the things that really matter to us. Our guest today has been Rebecca Scott from Street. Rebecca, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation. Pleasure. Pleasure.